and welcome to Two Hearts, a new Who podcast. My name is James. And I'm CJ. And this is the only podcast where we're messing about with Mr. Haverstock, the Butcher. And every week here on Two Hearts, we take a look at another episode from the 2005 Doctor Who revival. And this week, we look at episodes 9 and 10, The Empty Child and The Doctor Dances. But before that, um, we need to talk about why we took a week gap um, between the long game and Father's Day episodes going out. Yeah, uh, it definitely needs to be addressed that um, the, like we, we pre-recorded uh, Father's Day and then pretty much at, like after that was done, this whole uh, Black Lives Matter sort of movement completely exploded over those over that week. And it really felt like a very inappropriate time, especially as two white dudes, for us to just be sort of inserting ourselves with like, hey, here's a Doctor Who podcast on, on the weekend when we were seeing such, you know, an incredible social movement happening. And obviously we're not authoritative voices on the matter or anything. We're not trying to sort of claim that, uh, but it did feel like it was important for us to sort of step back and really uh, allow that to, to be what it was that weekend. So we appreciate that uh, you folks sort of took that, took that break with us. Hopefully you signed some petitions or donated or, or even March, like whatever that you can possibly do to support this um, incredibly important moment mm. in, uh, in our history. And it's worth noting as well that it hasn't, from our perspective now and into the future, it hasn't stopped. You know, the, these protests are still happening. Uh, nothing will happen without a real concerted effort um, on everyone's part to, you know, go out and protest, to donate money, raise awareness as well as the other thing. Um, so we'll continue to um, highlight that in the future, I think, on our socials um, and in episodes, future episodes. Um, but, uh, yeah, we just felt like it was, like James said, that it was necessary to take just a week yeah exactly and it is also worth noting like you said like it hasn't died down like i don't see it anywhere near as much on my twitter anymore but then you look at what's actually going on in these cities and these protests are getting bigger and bigger and so it's Mm. one of those things where like the algorithm and sort of like the quote-unquote mainstream media and whatnot is very much going to be trying to make you believe that this has just gone away quietly it absolutely hasn't um and like i said there there are so many resources out there that you can follow up on um we've been sharing them on our twitter page we will continue to do so and uh yeah, it's it's a really solemn thing to have to transition out of for us to start talking about Doctor Who again, but we hope that we can at least provide some kind of fun distraction for an hour. Um, it, it's, I mean, it's not the least we can do, but it, it's something. Yeah, it's what we can do with this platform, at least. Yeah. Um, so from there, I guess, uh, how are you doing this week, James? Uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not too bad. It's cool. It's a weird time. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, I know here in Sydney that the situation has brought about all these really weird circumstances. There's been police guarding statues, police macing uh, protesters. Uh, it's been, I-, I can't say unprecedented because all of this behavior is so intrinsic to, uh, and systemic in um, the police force. Um but just seeing it so blatantly come out after, in the response to all these riots. Um, yeah. I hope that it's been opening people's eyes up that wouldn't have considered police brutality, even a concept, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. It's been a real mask off couple of weeks and for this all to be sort of coming to the forefront during pride as well is such an important sort of time because, you know, a lot of queer pride is, is based in, um, you know, incredible black activists and trans activists. And so 
it, yeah, it's it's just been a lot. And and as a Doctor Who podcast, we're not really equipped to to handle this much. But as two queer men, it, it is important to to note that this is happening. It's happening in our own backyard, and we see it, and we completely stand mm. with everybody who opposes police brutality and supports uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Absolutely, and you raise an interesting um, another point there as well. Obviously, we are it's Pride Month. Um, traditionally in Northern America and Europe, but I guess globally as well, June is Pride Month. Um, and, you know, we've got Trump recently rolling back trans and gender diverse um, rights in America. Um, JK Rowling's gone off on her fucking soapbox on the <laughs> same issues. Um, it, it's really scary. It feels scary. So I hope if you're listening, looking for a bit of levity in this week, I hope we can provide that. <laughs> Definitely. And like, we're both on Twitter and in Instagram and whatnot, like reach out if you just need to talk to someone like <laughs> we're, we're just two idiots who want to talk about Doctor Who. And if you want to talk about Doctor Who or, or whatever, just, just know that community is, is out there for you. Um, and, and we definitely want to be a part of that. So. Absolutely. Um, in other news, there is no Doctor Who news this week. So <laughs> No, no, it's very, I mean, it's just, it's more big finish audio drama stuff, which like, if that's your thing, more power to you. Um, but again, like you can, you can find this stuff yourself. It's not really, no. it's not really anything reportable. But one interesting thing we have been doing in the break is, um, James, you have been watching some Torchwood recently. I have. CJ and I started this uh, kind of quid quo pro system where, you know, we suggest a movie or something for the other to watch that is maybe a little bit out of our wheelhouse or something that we've been putting off for whatever reason. And I'd only ever seen Tortured when it first premiered. I watched a few episodes. I was like, okay, it's, it's sexy. It's gay. It's adult Doctor Who, whatever. It is what it is. And um, this week I watched the five-parter Children of Earth and was promptly destroyed by it. So I'm really glad I challenged you to watch it because you'd always sort of said, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's Torchwood, it's a bit whatever. And I was like, no, you have to watch Children of Earth. It is stellar primetime sci-fi drama. Exactly right. And Russell T Davies like firing on all cylinders. It's interesting what he's able to do when he's sort of unshackled from the idea of like a family friendly quote unquote show, because like Children of Earth, uh, for those who have seen it, it gets explicitly horrific mm. um i i didn't think that i was going to be exposed to that much horror and darkness um through a show that is ostensibly a doctor who spin-off but if you haven't seen it it's only five episodes um i just please go and watch it it, it is such an interesting i'm not going to say fun experience no um it starts off in a kind of like oh it's sci-fi it's intriguing explosions and then by the end of it like i was just openly weeping and kind of reconsidering my stance on humanity it is it's so good and yeah full recommendations um in terms of our grading system it is a solid a it is mm. real good it's good it's good and i um yeah i don't want to i don't want to uh if if you're not in a good headspace right now probably don't watch it because it is alarmingly close to real world situations um especially in its depiction of like politics and politicians um and also like police well not even police brutality but, but like military brutality yeah and abuse of power as well mm -hmm. um yeah so but it, it is exceptional so it is yeah Absolutely. Uh, but I think with that, we are done with our sort of um, catch up for the week. So let's have a look at The Empty Child and The Doctor Dances. 
And why are we chasing it? It's mauve and dangerous. And about 30 seconds from the centre of London. Please let me in, Mummy. You mustn't let him touch you. Are you a doctor? I have my moments. They've all got the same injuries. Right down to the scar on the back of the hand. Physical injuries as plague. Hello. Hello. Shall we have a drink on the balcony? Oh. I like to think of myself as a criminal. I bet you do. The Empty Child and The Doctor Dances are episodes 9 and 10 respectively of the 2005 Doctor Who revival. They are directed by James Hawes and the, notably, the first story from writer Stephen Moffat. Well, yes, notably for the revival, but he did, a little bit of trivia, he did write a, um, I guess, a spoof for, um, oh God, what's it? It was for a charity event in England. Um, Is this the Mr. Bean one? What? (laughs) Yes, it does star Rowan Atkinson, but he's definitely not playing Mr. Bean. Um, but yeah, it's got Mr. It's got Rowan Atkinson, Julia Swahala, I think that's his last name. Um, and, um, like it, it's really good. And the other thing to note is that there are a lot of Moffat tropes in that little, like 10 minute, 20 minute spoof video. Really? Oh my God. I can't list them off the okay. top of my head, but you go back and you'll see all of the different things, all of the different devices that he likes to use are there in that little. Is it on YouTube? Video. It is on YouTube. Yes. Excellent. We will pop it into the show links because I have not seen it. So um, I, yeah. It's well worth a watch and it's very funny and, but very dated, exceptionally dated. (laughs) Good stuff. Uh, So first let's have a look at our old friend IMDB uh, for The Empty Child. When a spaceship crashes in the middle of the London Blitz, the Doctor, Rose, and the enigmatic Captain Jack Harkness find themselves investigating a plague of physical injuries and a little boy in a gas mask. And, for the Doctor dancers, the gas mask zombies are on the rise as the plague spreads across war-torn London. We start really strong, and then we falter. (laughs) That first one is really good. um, It is. In summing up, like even the tone and energy of this episode i love it yeah absolutely absolutely but for those who maybe haven't seen it for a while or for some reason if you're listening to this without even having watched it first of all thank you uh let's do a just a a quick plot rundown so that everybody is on the same page before we get started here the Doctor and Rose land in World War II London, chasing a mysterious errant piece of space junk. While London is under siege from the planes above, the empty child, a zombie with a gas mask glued to its face, stalks the street calling for his mummy. The Doctor meets Nancy, a young woman who is caring for the unwanted children of war and is on the run from the empty child, while Rose, meanwhile, meets the handsome Captain Jack, a time-travelling conman. The Doctor realises the space junk was actually a medical ship transporting nanogenes, robots that fix and repair soldiers, and have been mistakenly fixing humans in the image of the first patient they attempted to cure, a small boy killed in the crash who was, of course, wearing a gas mask. Jack, Rose, and the Doctor work together with Nancy to bring an end to the plague by having the nanogenes recognise Nancy as the boy's actual mother, reconfiguring their fixing procedure. We wrap things up with Jack being saved from certain death by the Doctor as the newly formed trio dances around the TARDIS, a rare moment of genuine victory for the time travellers. It's a nice bit of editorial um, license there at the end. 
Thank you. I appreciated it too. Uh, so, <laughs> obviously, these two episodes are considered um, genuine classics. Al- along with Dalek, these are the ones that people tend to hold up as um, the real, like, sort of crown jewel of season one. Uh, so, how do you feel about the Empty Child and the Doctor dances? I mean, what can we say that hasn't already been said? It's it is a classic. A uh, couple of episodes, um, and a- an exceptionally well-paced, um, well-structured, contained couple of episodes as well. I, I really appreciate the fact that these, these could not, not could be dropped into any season. Like they are of this season in terms of how they introduce horror, um, and sexuality to the show. Um, but they do at the same time, like, it's just like a nice little self-contained little mystery, um, in the, amongst all of these other, kind of uh, behemoths and character um, arc episodes. It's really nice to see Chris Freckleson uh, just sort of doing his thing for the week and getting a real victory at the end. Uh, but what do you think, James? Uh, yeah, pretty much exactly what you said. It's it's difficult to say anything that hasn't already been said about these two because, again, they are the, the crown jewel of this season. Um, obviously, I'm a huge Moffat fan when he's having a good day. Um, (laughs) And this is one of his absolute best days. And looking at this story, I can absolutely see why they chose him as showrunner after this. Um, It is, like you said, it's just so tightly constructed and, and it's got this sort of like epic scale, but at the same time, the um, sort of smaller personal moments that really make the show worth, make the show what it is really. Well, yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that is so striking about this episode, these couple of episodes is how much they signal the way forward for the show when Moffat like does eventually take over. It's so self-assured in its vision that like you say, like it's obvious watching this, like why he became showrunner after Russell T. Yeah, absolutely right. And yet it's that self-assuredness it's that confidence in the story that it's telling that i feel like has been lacking a little bit from some of like the the worser episodes of of this season um and it's interesting because if you if we had gone from you know dalek to father's day to this it would have been an incredible run of episodes and then there's the long game just kind of like hanging out (laughs) in there (laughs) um but yeah it's I mean, it is Moffat firing on all cylinders. And to your point about, you know, this episode almost could have been pulled from any of the later seasons. I, I do vibe with that because I think it is, like I said, the most confident of these new stories and the most uh, representative of the tone that would eventually go on to define the show for the next, you know, however many years. Uh, when you say that, do you mean in specifically Stephen Moffat's time or across the next couple of seasons? Um, across like Russell T Davies, Stephen Moffat, and even parts of Chibnall. Um, like yeah. it's just that, that balancing act between all the different elements of the show is, is just working really well here. You're right. And like you said, it does really, it does such a fantastic job of balancing horror, adventure, sci-fi history as well. I sometimes forget that this is a historical episode, um, because the historical con like the historical setting is. I don't want to say it's like a backdrop. It, it it does eventually play into how why the story is set there, the plot. Um, it's necessary for it to be at, at, in this time and place, but it does at the same time it has this like freshness and zinginess that isn't typically associated with historical episodes. Um, it's 
yeah i don't want to say it's perfect but it's feeling that way <laughs> very much so um and yeah to your point like i don't love the historical episodes like i think sometimes it can be used really well and other times really not well and you it's interesting that you say it's almost like a backdrop i i think that's indicative of just how organically it's folded into the story themes and plot of what's actually going on here in the sense that you don't really think about it as a historical because it is just so seamlessly tied together with the the sci-fi and the character stuff that we like so much. Mm. Um, and so it does give it a very fresh feel. I mean, you look at something like um, The Unquiet Dead where it's like, it's very kind of like stuffy and and very much like, you know, oh, we're, we're in the past here, like very much in the past. And then you look at this and we're equally in the past here, but it just, it snaps so beautifully i it's difficult to explain because like i I think um a real good thing about moffat is that when he works well it's essentially like um it's a form of like on-screen magic the way that he Mm. writes these stories um interconnects and and locks into place so well that trying to even pull it apart you're kind of like no just like it (laughs) you're right um he he is displaying here one of the things i really appreciate about appreciate about him as a writer is using time as a as a real central crux of his stories there's always a freshness and a modernity about um his episodes that are set that have historical elements and there's also this sense of characters who are out of time that i really appreciate you know it's very small here but like with captain jack being the you know sci-fi time traveling con man that he is he's like been dropped into this historical milieu, milau, milau, I think is the word. Anyway, um, <laughs> scared over that. Um, and then, you know, we look at future episodes with Madame de Pompadour and the clockwork, or, um, clockwork, I was going to say clockwork oranges then, um, the clockwork <laughs> droids. And then you look at Blink, which again is playing on these same things. His science of the library with River Song and other characters out of time. And it feels like he's really just, looking at the premise of the show and saying what can i play with here i don't have to do a traditional story i don't have to do what's come before i can use these things these blocks and build something completely different um yeah exactly right i'm sorry to cut in did stephen moffat write blink yes oh my god yes (laughs) i had listener i had absolutely no idea i am this I, I am experiencing a full-blown moffissance. Like, oh my god. Oh my god, I can't believe you didn't know that. <laughs> oh my god. No, absolutely no idea. Um well I mean, yeah, I mean like I think you just summed it up perfectly just then. Like, you know, he looks at Doctor Who and look, we're gonna we're gonna have a little chat about Stephen Moffat here because one, you can't not when we're going to talk about these episodes because they are so influential on sort of the future of the show, in, even in a very literal way with him sort of taking over at some point. Mm. Um, and I, I think that it's important to recognise that while he has been quite divisive amongst the fan base and even between like you and I, like we've discussed that the Amy years, you know, that we're going to get to eventually, I am very nervous about because I, I remember distinctly not liking them mm-hmm. um and so he he doesn't he's not always perfect um but his kind of like creativity and that special 
definitive Moffat flavor that he brings to things. Um, it reminds me very much of what Ryan Johnson did with The Last Jedi in the sense that you've got this kind of like established writer who's known for his kind of like really snappy dialogue and, and clever plot work. Um, and he comes into an established sci-fi franchise and says, all right, how can I kind of like, you know, tip the toy box upside down and, and just play with things in a, a different way that's going to challenge the audience. And again, when, when Moffat's good, he, he does that really perfectly. He, yeah, you're right. Um, and, you know, we can talk about his strengths as a showrunner, his flaws, which are 100% there as a showrunner. But he always, when it, when it's just him and he's allowed to not focus on anything else, producing the a season as a whole, when he's just writing a story, oh my God, it's amazing. Yeah, um, absolutely. And there's a reason why his episodes under Russell T, when he was just able to write a story, why they are so highly, like they're, they're the most acclaimed of every single season. Um, yeah, it's, saying, it's interesting. Oh, sorry. And that's saying something when he's not even the showrunner, you know? <laughs> One of the things that was so surprising about researching this particular season was like how Russell T's episodes uh, in Doctor Who magazine, they do a poll every year uh, of the, you know, what viewers thought the best season episodes were that season. And it, I was surprised that Russell T's episodes were all in the bottom for this particular season. But I mean, the episodes that we have loved so much have all been written by different other writers, right? Well, yeah, that's it. If, if you even look back at like the way that we've graded these episodes, like I, I do think Russell T Davies's ones do very much end on the, the bottom spectrum of things. And that is, um, uh, Look, it's definitely a feeling, it's, it's disappointing in a sense to sort of go back to something that, you know, you thought that you loved in a particular way and find out that you actually don't. Um, but at the same time, it is, it's the first season of the show. Uh, when we take a look at things like what Moffat's done here, it's important to remember that he had just the freedom to just do a standalone story, essentially. He didn't have to worry about overarching plot and character work and whatnot. So, you know, I'm definitely willing to cut Russell T Davies some slack, but at the same time, it is slightly telling that um what Moffat was able to do under Davies being the most sort of like critically acclaimed stuff yeah it's you you can see why he ended up as showrunner so let's look at the episodes and all the reasons why it's so good <laughs> yeah it's gonna get into a real love fest so strap in folks where do you want to start James gosh we've got so much to talk about I feel this is like the first episode we've recorded where I'm just like I could dive in anywhere and be happy. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's start with, I guess, just the overarching plot because, and it's something that we've put in our show notes here. This feels like the first genuinely plotted episode of this mm. season. Like it is, it's dense, it's thematically rich, it's layered. It works with the characters as opposed to pitting them in situations where like it feels a bit you know, inorganic and whatnot. It's just so good. Yeah. Like you said, it's the first story structure around plot. Um, I was just thinking about Aliens of London and World War Three, and I guess they come close to that same space, but it's not nearly as satisfying as it is here. It's, yeah, it's it's just, it's like a little toy box, really. It is, it is. And, and watching the way that he, and especially, it's also worthy of note that this is the first time where we see that real split between the Doctor and Rose in the sense that they both get to have equally fun and interesting and unique adventures here. Yeah, I was struck by that actually about that they are immediately split up from the from the get-go for that first episode. And 
look, we can talk about Rose later down the line, um, but they both really hold their own as travelers in time in this story. Like they're like, like there are very few moments where they're properly phased by things. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, you mentioned Aliens of London and World War Three, and I, I do think there is some shared DNA here in the sense that, you know, once again, we've got the Doctor separated and he gets to go off and, you know, be the Doctor. He gets to go and investigate and fuck around and make jokes and get into little scraps and whatnot. <laughs> Whereas in that one where it kind of failed because the tone was just oscillating around so much, in this one, there's like a consistent buildup of, you know, like a mystery you know, he gets that really fantastic scene at the very beginning of the episode where, you know, he goes into the speakeasy to try and find out what's going on. And it's this impressive to see Moffat already sort of allowing for an episode that starts in such like a big sort of a like quick bang way of like, you know, they're chasing the object through space. It's like, mm. oh, what's going on? Fucking flashy lights and whatnot. And then when he finally land, he separates the two characters. And the first thing the doctor walks into is essentially just like an aesthetic vibe setting piece. Yeah, I, you know? yeah, even now I am very struck by that first, that nightclub scene. And I was watching it just actually mesmerized by the fact we were seeing a, a performer. I don't know what it is about music in episode music, live music that gets me, but it, it, yeah, like you said, it did that job of setting us in a time and place immediately. It's a really good device yeah. just generally. It, it, it's a really good device. And then, you know, that transitions beautifully into the doctor doing the whole, has, any, has anything fallen from the sky recently? And you get that really good joke about, well, yeah, we're in the middle of World War II. <laughs> That's so, it's, it's just, it's very, it's very efficient storytelling. Um, and like, like my, my point that I was making about like, you know, the doctor off on his own little adventure being the doctor, mm. you know, that spins off into, you know, he meets up with Nancy, he follows her and we're going to get to Nancy. Bless Nancy. He meets up with with this wonderful Nancy character. Um, and then, you know, through their interactions together, we get this like beautiful kind of, you know, he sees all the kids, he gets to make jokes with them and be fun with them mm. while at the same time dealing with the empty child itself. So he gets these kind of like tense horror sequences. He gets to be inquisitive and a little bit out of his element. Like when the phone starts ringing on the TARDIS, it just throws so much at him. And it's such a, a well-paced sort of um, series of events mm -hmm. that we get a really good exploration of both his like sort of internal emotional character, as well as getting to just watch a fun Doctor Who story. The thing that about a fun, yeah, it is weirdly fun, isn't it? First, an episode that has a really um, strong horror element to it and a really strong social conscious as well. And that's not to say that you can't be socially conscious and also, you know, have a few laughs now and again. But um, all of those different elements, like you say, he really does marry them up quite nicely. I guess it's just, it's the mark of a good writer when they're able to balance uh, all the different emotions in one story. It's a real mastery of just drama, really, because drama is life and life has all these different things happening in them. I know that that's not like, <laughs> I speak how I mean, guys. <laughs> um, but I do, I do want to really talk about like, how well structured this episode is and there's a quote that was um in doctor who magazine when they did uh, a poll of the top 200 stories um and i think uh, i can't remember which it was in the top 10 these two episodes came out in of all doctor who so that, do you remember what number one was number one was case of andrazani um and oh yeah it was such a good poll um and the results are really 
not surprising and not surprising. Like all your classics are up there, but then, you know, Blink is number two. And this is, I think it was number six or number five. I can't remember. Okay. So it polled like obviously both classic and new who. Yeah. The whole, the whole thing. Um, That's really interesting. mm. Uh, I think what all the listeners really want to know is where did Pyramids of Mars come in? Um, I think it came in the top 10, but I don't remember what number. That's okay. It was was mostly just a joke. We didn't need to (laughs) go into it. (laughs) Anyway, so in in this article, uh, they printed a quote from Moffat where he talks about how he structures mystery plots. Um, And I just, I adore it because it's so simple. He said, people complain about endings a lot, but they don't know really what they're talking about. They talk about God out of the machine deus ex machina etc but they don't actually mean that what they mean is you can't win the game with a new piece on the board you have to have seen already what the downfall of the enemy will be and not recognized it for what it is that's what they mean like that is exactly what's on display here like everything you need to understand the story is introduced in that first episode and it's only in the second episode that he very skillfully puts all the pieces into the like it's like a chess game basically like he puts all the pieces moves them around the board to the exact point where at the very end when the doctor reveals what he is deduced by this point that it all just clicks into place and there are other stories that do this but they never feel as satisfying as they do here it almost feels like um like it's part of season 11's attempt at making you know the monster isn't really a monster kind of twist ending for every episode because like in this one you start being quite afraid of the child and even through episode two you're still very much that way because you know obviously there's an inherent danger to what's going on there but then the actual reality of the monster of the week is what an ambulance and a child that wants its mother like there's no inherent malice to what's going on here Mm. it's just sort of like reverberations of of pain and sci-fi concepts and i think that's just so clever it is clever and it's super refreshing as well because like we've had other stories where they were kind of angling towards that the one that is sticking in my brain right now is the empty sorry not the empty (laughs) that's what we're talking about now um is the unquiet dead where you have the gelth and you think they're evil and then they reveal themselves to not be but then at the end they're like no we're actually evil which is like oh okay it's doctor who so i guess this has to happen but yeah like they could have easily gone down that route and they didn't have to the other thing that really strikes me about this episode is its frankness um let's talk about let's talk about the doctor let's talk about sexuality let's talk about dancing let's talk about dancing um yeah look the the running metaphor of dancing being fucking essentially (laughs) um is simultaneously really sort of like heavy-handed and a bit silly but but at the same time in a family-friendly show if you're going to package a conversation about sexuality and especially sexuality amongst aliens and immortal beings it's a cute way of doing it it totally is um you know and i think one of the things i appreciate about this episode is that it doesn't take for granted that sex plays into a lot of decisions that people make and plays into a, a human experience. Now, I'm not suggesting that to be human, you have to want or desire sex. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. But from this episode's perspective, it is at least acknowledging the role that sex has had in shaping humanity 
in shaping our, you know, world and our lived experience. Yeah, exactly. And it's also important to note, like, it's not just how sex defines things, but also gender and sexuality in general. This episode is playing with so many different facets of the human experience through the lens of, of those two things. Um, and it's it's really... It's really rich, let's say. Mm. Uh, and you're right, it, it is bold. It's it's not subtle. It, it very much puts itself on Front Street and says, you know, yes, we're a show for children, but if you're paying attention to really what's going on here, we are very much telling a adult story about these things. An adult story, absolutely, for children at the same time. Um, and that's mm. what's just so good about it, is it's not talking down to kids and it's not um, hiding away from these things, these very ugly aspects of um of sexual politics so there are like there are so many examples of this like the main one being um and spoiler alert if you haven't seen it um i'm assuming you've already seen these episodes um <laughs> but there's the whole what is so brilliant about this story is the fact that the the reveal the deciding uh, sort of beginning action that kicked off all the events that we've already seen off screen obviously but anyway is based around one character who is ashamed that they've had sex. And that is just such an interesting place to start a story from and ultimately finish it because that realisation and coming to that conclusion is what ultimately saves the day with Nancy and her having to admit to being uh, the empty child's mother as opposed to their sister. It's just such a, a rich, like you said, place to begin and extrapolate a story from. Yeah, exactly right. And I think having this episode be as subtle as it is about its gender politics is definitely a um, a point in its um, favour. Because while there is definitely a place for explicit um, sort of, you know, down the camera kind of um, gender stories within Doctor Who, um, it's good to see that, like you said, this one begins with an off-screen gendered political moment. And then the way that that goes on to inform the story ties in really well with what I was saying before about this isn't a malicious monster like it is mm. just a manifestation of of oppression which again ties in really well with the war theme that's going on in the background and it does all just lock together to tell you like a, a really interesting very political story totally political and you're going back to what you just said the one thing that i i really enjoyed realizing about this episode is how much the empty child as a metaphor is is basically functioning as a metaphor um for a curse that's following Nancy around like it's it's the same as if okay in a like in a really twisted other horrific version of this story the child wouldn't have been a child they would have been something much more horrific like a like an aborted fetus or something um too much <laughs> I, don't, I don't necessarily think so I did raise my eyebrows but in like a good way <laughs> Yeah, I was, as I was saying, I was like, I can't not say it now because I've gone down that route, but I'm like, oh, maybe not. Um, it's like, it is heavy stuff for a character to deal with in like 1940s London, war-torn London, no less, um, to have the reminder of their shame and guilt following them, but also passing itself on and to becoming airborne and a virus. Exactly right. And sort of dovetailing out of um, Nancy's uh, sort of explicitly adult sexuality driven story, we've also got Captain Jack Harkness for the first time, who is queer representation. <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> Look, yes. Captain Jack. Captain Jack, I guess, is the first openly 
explicitly queer character that we've seen. And the fact that he isn't like even in your face about it so much just shows you how further they could have gone with this character. Um, yes and no. It, it's strange because I try to like, I'm trying to put myself in a 2005 mindset where, you know, you maybe would expect a more openly explicit queer character to be that representation that we desperately needed at the time. And that also, let's be honest, that we still do kind of need. Um, mm. But I can't help but think from like a 2020 mindset and just from my own personal sort of like desires for queer characters, I do like that it is very just like, not even subtly, like it's just organically folded into his character. It's not mm. an open conversation about it as such. It's just more of a, this is what he is. Mm. Um, my only slight gripe with it is that if we're going to do queer representation i would like for it to be queer representation not oh he'll just dance with anybody kind of thing because mm-hmm. there's a lot of dialogue about you know the way he ends up like oh you know he, he messes around with aliens as well as men and women and it's kind of like okay sure um it's it just feels like it's a half step towards what the character could have represented and that again that might be just that very 2005 thing coming forward I think it's actually even prevalent today because I th- if I'm correct in picking up what you're putting down, there's obviously there's the school of thought now about whether or not, like what are labels basically is what I'm poking at here. What, what's in the power of a name, the power of a label, identifying yourself as gay or lesbian or bisexual or pansexual, whatever the case may be. Or are you somebody who's just like, I just love everybody or I, I I don't want to put a label on it and this is still an argument that's happening you know now and not just in terms of like how the community like self-identifies but also what is the overarching umbrella term for our community is it queer is it LGBT or LGBTQIA plus whatever the case may be um what is the power of claiming that term for yourself and are you limiting or hiding by not like standing behind it. Um, it That all comes to play here. And it's not a nuanced enough conversation to have A, in a children's or family show, B, in um, a 2005 setting. Um, and I imagine that the writers at the time would have been like, this is very forward thinking because he's a character who, as you say, will fuck anything. Um, and it's also a character drawn from the future, right? Where you can imagine that sexuality will have progressed to such a point where you will have characters or people that are like completely open to any form of sexuality whatsoever, but we're not there yet is the other argument to make. Yeah, definitely. And, and it, it definitely is progressive for 2005. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to take away from what they did here because I do think it's, it's really great. And like we talked about this, the way that he's introduced as well, you know, we get that scene where Rose's, Rose is hanging from a, a blimp for reasons because that's what Rose does. Um, and so Rose is, is suspended over London and we cut to Jack, you know, and he's watching her through his little sci-fi binoculars and he remarks, you know, oh, excellent bottom. And you're like, oh, okay, great. I guess like that objectification of women is obviously something that's been a problem through media in, for all of history. And we've talked about the way that Rose is sometimes sort of played in, in, less than favorable ways for this show and so you you start with that and then immediately you pivot to him saying the exact same thing to his male um 
uh, the other sergeant or whatever the other military guy is. He gives them like a, a whack on the button or not. Mm. And you're like, oh, okay. So like it's equal opportunity objectification. And while that might not necessarily be like a nuanced or appropriate response to the objectification problem, it is at least a response to it. And mm. so I, I do appreciate what they're doing there with him. Um, I just wish that, like, like I said, if, if we're going to write him in the sense that, you know, he's so far into the future that sexuality has become so fluid that, you know, anybody will fuck anything. I think that's a really great future concept and I'm very into it and whatnot. Um, but at the same time, it does feel like a slight cop out to be like, oh, well, you know, he's from an imagined world where sexuality doesn't really exist anymore because that's not actual representation. It's fiction. It is fiction, and as we've noted, as people have noted, sci-fi is a reflection of our times. It's also a, a vision of how we would like things to be, but you you do have to do the, the work to to marry it up with present-day debates and conversations that are being had. Um, and I think that that's, it's approaching that here, but as you say, at the same time, it is, it's utopian in its view, but not helpful, maybe? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'd agree with that. But at the same time, like a little bit of utopia every now and again really isn't a bad thing. It's it's no. kind of nice to to watch something that kind of like when I watched uh, Torchwood this last week and you and I had the conversation about everyone in Torchwood is just by um, and that's just kind of like a given for the show. And I, I do think that that is a really great thing because, you know, while it might not be as sort of like explicitly queer as I would like. And I do think it's important that, and this is a much more nuanced conversation than we have time for here, but there is a difference between sort of having a gay character and having queer representation. They are very different things because homosexuality can still be uh, represented through sort of a straight male gaze at times. Mm. Um, and so it is a very different thing as having proper queer conversations and representations in your media. But again, this is Doctor Who. It is primarily aimed at children. And even with the spinoffs like Torchwood, I do appreciate that an effort has been made to sort of completely remove the sexuality conversation as a means to maybe sort of sidestep some of the uglier parts that you'd have to deal with if you had a more queer story. 100% agree. Now, I want to pivot to John Barrowman. Okay, so hot take. Go with me here. He is great in these episodes. I never want to see him again. After we just got done talking about how good Torchwood is. <laughs> I know, I know. And I, it's funny because like, I, I love Torchwood so much. I love the show and I love that serial so much, but I don't watch it for John Barrowman. I, I find him, I find him out of this episode, out of the context of this episode. And it, I'm, maybe I'm talking about Captain Jack Harkness specifically. That character is so like died in the wall of this episode you know, he's roguish, devilish, charming. He's an Air Force pilot. He's, he's got that, like, war hero look about him. And then once you take him out of this episode, he just... Oh, to me, he doesn't work. And so he's never been as better, as good as he is in these in this particular story. But I'm also just not sure if his performance, John Barrowman's performance, um, is enough to carry a lead, shall we say. 
That's understandable. I do think that Stephen Moffat has a... This is something we haven't really talked about in regards to the writing of this episode, but um, despite sort of how well-balanced and um, and dark and, and adventurous and whatnot that it is, it is also quite pulpy. It, it feels mm. like a serial. And so when you've got characters like Captain Jack Harkness who are specifically written to be a part of a very specific tone of episodes, when you rip them out of that, you're right, It's it maybe doesn't work as well as it should and i think that really you kind of you only need to look to the way that he was used in like season 12 to be all like maybe there was a mistake made along the way here in making this guy such an, an inherent part of the dna of the show um and i know that we just talked about how great it is to have that kind of um quasi queer representation going on but the character itself maybe doesn't serve the rest of the show to your point the way that he should yeah, I think that's it because he doesn't. The character that we see here isn't actually the one that we get ongoing. The character here is, you know, is mistrustful, and they're like they're our self-professed con man. You know, they they use their charm and their sexuality to to get what they want, and it isn't always a good thing that they want either. You know, that's the definition of devilish and roguish. You know, he's a rogue, and yet. When we see, like, from the end of this season, and we'll get to these episodes, obviously, later, he becomes this kind of action hero that that first depiction and iteration of the character doesn't suggest or even hint at where he could possibly end up. And I like these, I like this Captain Jack a lot as a supporting character. But when you take him out of the context, when you put him as a lead or with this, like, you know, trauma and I don't know that I'm, I'm not explaining this very well, but I, yeah, it feels, and I'll go back to the point. It just, he's never been as good as a character as he is here. Yeah. And it also goes to, to what you were saying about Stephen Moffat's writing. Um, he has a nice line in writing um, these kinds of like sexuality, heavy commanding kind of um, characters. And the obvious other um, comparison for Jack is River Song the time traveling um, sex device and, (laughs) (laughs) and again, like I love river song when she's written by Moffat and I love Jack when he's written by Moffat. I'm just not sure that other writers necessarily are equipped to write the characters as well as he can. Yeah. He, he writes very specific characters for very specific purposes. And so when you remove those characters from that context, things get a little bit wobbly sometimes. I think the Mm. only time that that's really been done well is when, um, uh, a shielder of all characters, Mm -hmm. you know, she's very specifically written for a purpose in, um, the woman who lived to Parter, but then, you know, she comes back in, um, what is it? Face the Raven. And and that was written by, uh, Australian writer, Sarah Dollard. And so that's one of the rare, rare sort of times when removing a Moffat character from the Moffatisms still works and serves the purpose. And you're right with River Song, we see it working less and less as time goes on and the way that they handle, Ooh, all of River Song. There's so much to get, to get through when we get to that. Um, and you're right. Again, with Jack Harkness as well, it's just I like the character that he is on Torchwood. It just feels like a different character. He is a different character. He is entirely a different character, and I think that's part of the problem. Is that I don't like that character. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the that's other fair. thing, it's interesting that you bring a shielder into the conversation because, like, 
you're right. Like, I think Moffat co-wrote her first episode, so I don't know if we can lay claim to her being a complete Moffat creation. But it, in terms of the function she serves for series nine, like, yes, she's she was probably conceived uh, by Moffat. But if mm. if Ashilda had gone on to appear in another episode outside of that very specific arc that they set up in season nine, I don't think it would be as successful. No, I, I don't think so uh, at all. Like she is, she's written for a purpose um, mm. and, and she serves that purpose. And Jack is written for a purpose here. And I know that you have some, oh, you obviously have some misgivings about him going forward and Boomtown next week will be very interesting. It will. And I have thoughts about him there too. <laughs> but, I'm sure you do. Um, I'm sure you do. We could talk about Jack later. Because uh, obviously uh, one of the things about this episode is they he is saved from certain death and comes a companion. Yes, he is. Which is, uh, I, I guess, a, a good enough transition into um, another Moffatism that people sort of have their thoughts and feelings on. The idea that everybody lives. <laughs> mm, it's good. <laughs> I know that people have their misgivings, rightfully so, when you have characters constantly being resurrected and coming back, main characters as well. Um, but here, it's so perfect and so intrinsic to this episode's success. Yes, and not just this episode's success, but the season's success. You know, like in, in the last episode with Father's Day, we had sort of Rose's growing up moment and i think it's interesting that in this episode we almost have a healing moment for the doctor in the sense that i mean he very explicitly says in in one of maybe the most heartbreaking line of this whole two-parter um when he's watching the nanogenes try to sort of resurrect um uh the the, the empty child hmm. um and he it just says you know please give me this one just this once hmm. let every let you know let everybody live kind of thing um and it just works as a really nice answer to the trauma that he's been carrying around for the whole of this season so far, where, you know, all of his journeys before Rose, no, like people didn't live the last, the last real big adventure he went on, everybody died. And so to, to have this as sort of a, I'm not sure if it works as a cap to that trauma, because I, I genuinely can't remember what's coming in the next few episodes, mm. but it feels like an organic, um, not end point, but a, a proper moving forward for the character from here. Yeah, you're right. And in one of my notes, I wrote about how the time war and the, that ongoing story wasn't really present here, but as I'm thinking about it more and more, like it, it is there, but it's presented in a very different way. And one of those things, as you say, is, is the, how the resolution of this episode is that everybody lives. The doctor gets to save the day and nobody has to die in the middle of a war, no less, um, which has its own exactly. mirror to the time war. Um, it, it does. It does. And, it, you know, you say, like, about how, you know, initially you noted down it's not really present here. And I think it's interesting because when Russell T Davies writes about the time war and the Doctor's trauma, it's, you know, it, it's screaming about it. it, like literally screaming about that trauma. <laughs> and uh, when it's done through Moffat's sort of more pulpy but uh, tighter writing lens, you just get these little nods to it throughout the entire episode. You get that moment where the Doctor says to Nancy, he makes an offhanded comment about, you know, oh, nobody wants to be the child left out in the cold alone. And Nancy's like, yeah, I bet you'd know all about that in, in a very glib way. And he just has that quiet moment to himself where he's mm. like, I do actually. And it's just that 
you don't, it doesn't need to yell. It doesn't need to be on front street for you to understand exactly what he's feeling and talking about in that moment. And it's another one of Moffat's strengths that when he is subtle, he uses it as, it, it's like a knife between the ribs kind of thing, mm. you know? You don't really see it coming and then suddenly you bleed. Um, and on the topic of Nancy, I think we should talk about her. Uh, and the actress uh, who plays her, Florence Hoth, brings a nice hard edge to her character. You're absolutely right. And hard edge is is the perfect way to describe it because she is simultaneously having to play the role of a on-the-run you know, teenage mother running from a mutated version of the child that she refuses to acknowledge, right? So she has to do all of that while also being a World War II Robin Hood of, of sorts. Mm-hmm. You know, like the whole, the first time we... No, the second time we see her is the whole, you know, bringing all the the needy kids into the house during the the air raid so that they can feed off of the food in there. And you know, later on we learn that, you know, they only have that food through devious uh, sort of um, circumstances, and so it is that stealing from those who have too much and giving to those who don't have enough. And so she gets to play what could have been a like really dull kind of mother Teresa Mm. kind of saint role. She gets to imbue that with, with, you know, inherent sexuality in, in um, the childhood stuff, um, inherent gender politics, um, an inherent Mm -hmm. kind of like snarky, um, but not in a, a crude way. Like she has defenses up that make perfect sense for, you know, where she's at in her life. Mm. She is just an astoundingly well-written and well-performed character. Mm -hmm. And the way that she interacts with the doctor and by removing Rose from the situation um, gives them sort of time to play off of each other. She, they both play off of each other's trauma in a really Mm -hmm. interesting way. Yes. She does get a really nice opportunity to play off Chris Reckleston. And then when I, one of the scenes I really love about in this episode is the nice line of vulnerability she brings to that scene with Rose, where they're talking about the future and uh, and World War, you know, the kind of future that Nancy could possibly imagine having. And she has not to say no hope, but she is definitely not hopeful about the future uh, by any means. Um, and then oh, it's just such a nice moment, isn't it, when when Rose gets to tell her, you know, you win. And you see just her face light up. It's a really fantastic performance. It is. It definitely is. And uh, something I also learned, that scene passed the Bechdel test, which is nice. <laughs> That's um, for a series that we had been sort of having our issues with Rose's characterization and conversations at times. It is really good to see her get to have like a real highlight moment with um, with Nancy. So that's, again, it's just, it's it's consistently good. Like there are so few moments where these two parters even falter even slightly and one of the other things one of the other really successful things we haven't even talked about yet is the empty child themselves because it's such a astounding uh, sorry not astounding it's such a simple uh design isn't it of just like this gas mask child walking around that looks the one thing i really like like about the start of the episode is how it shows you the child somehow got itself up on the roof um and rose is calling out to it going are you all right are you all right and that's a clue to where we are, A. But also it's not played, even though it still, because of context, you can imagine it's a scary situation. It's not played as a threat. It's just a child in danger. And when you realise that actually the child is the threat, it's a nice reversal of those expectations. Um, and just the design is is stunningly good that's it it's iconic you know we're forced to stand how can we not Mm -hmm. i mean look at it it's it's really 
again, like the whole with the the historical setting almost being sort of just part of the background flavor of what's going on here, you take something as simple as um, a gas mask and the real life connotations that we have with that sort of imagery. You put it on a child, you have him repeat the same line over and over again, and you have this iconic, perfect Doctor Who antagonist. Um, and so it starts out really nicely with that, where you get this weird blend of like, you're afraid of it, but you also feel some sort of sympathy for it because it's a child and you're not really sure what's going on. Mm. You're kind of emotionally aligned with the doctor at that point. And then eventually sort of as the reveals keep going and we get that incredible scene between the doctor and the doctor in the hospital, you know, when he, he goes to the ward where all the other patients with the gas masks are being kept. And suddenly it goes from, this one child that you're unsure what you're supposed to feel about to rooms full of people with these things welded to their face mm. and this sort of like defeated, um, you know, old man in the center being all like, I'm, I'm at the, I'm at my wits end here. These things are essentially monsters and I don't know what to do. Um, and it's just this really good building of, of tension and of sort of like horror imagery that culminates in, arguably maybe a scene that is too much for children it is a very horrific scene isn't it at the moment really with the um the transition where you know dr constantine's talking and then he, he grabs at his neck and he's like are you my mommy um thank you very much i do uh, do impressions and um and then you get that really good shot of the the one thing that traumatized me as a kid was seeing the little like air funnel like come out of his mouth as it's like expanding and then his eyes expand these like bug like huge um lenses um mm. the that is scary in and of itself but the one thing i'm really glad that they got rid of is in the original cut that that didn't transmission that didn't go to transmission i should say um all that effects was uh, accompanied by a, like a really horrific bone cracking sound, which I think would have been just like laying it on a bit thick. Um, the shot and the effect itself is enough to <laughs> effectively scare the kids. It really is. Like it's the first instance of very explicit body horror that I remember mm. in Doctor Who. Um, and, and it is explicit like even though like sort of like yeah you could say like the cgi of 2005 is aged but these two episodes still look stunning and you know when you get something like you said like the eyes expanding and the thing forcing its way out of its throat it, it's it's just genuinely horrifying and it's a part of this episode that again along with the sexuality and the humor and the swashbuckling adventure. And then you get the horror on top of it as well. And the way that it's all folded into each other. So you never get bogged down in one genre for too long and they bleed into each other in really interesting ways is it's just another reason why this episode is considered as good as it is. Yeah, you're right. And the body horror stuff is something that I had neglected to mention uh, in the notes that we put down is, is yeah, like it's the first proper example of body horror that the doctor who, this new iteration of Doctor Who is done, which it did really well during the Hinchcliffe Holmes fourth Doctor era. Um, that scene of the Doctor, Doctor Constantine, I should say, transforming into the another empty child it is really, it's so essential to a later scene where Nancy's chained up and being guarded by someone who has a cut on the back of their hand and you know is about to turn into one of those creatures too. And when she's like grilling him, like, 
saying, you know, do you have a wife, wife's name? What's your name? And he can't remember anything. And all he wants to say is, are you my mummy? And she says, you know, you can feel something forcing your way up your throat. And you're like, I haven't even seen it yet. And I know what's about to happen to you. And I am dead terrified of what's going to happen here. Ah, it's so good. (laughs) I got to stop saying that. It's just so good. It is, it is. And it's unflinching in the way that it presents these things, um, which is like, it's something that we talked about or that I've specifically talked about many times throughout the season is that like, I want this show to push boundaries. I want it to try new things and, and do things that are new and uncomfortable. And these two episodes really give me that. And I just, mm. so we should probably um, discuss Rose. Hey, because I have a thought about Rose. If you care. I love thoughts about Rose. Do you indeed? <laughs> Um, we talked previously about, um, before we recorded about where Rose sort of, how she enters this story and that little mini conversation they have when they step out the TARDIS about, you know, how long does it take before we knock into earth? Oh, you know, about five days or we run out of milk, like the jokes and the quippiness that just like falls out of her mouth feel extremely adult. And you mentioned about how this is a natural progression from father's day um, where she had to sort of grow up a little bit from being a teenager child into a more mature adult. So I do appreciate that, you know, she's developing and growing a bit more. Um, I feel like she is a completely different character here, though. Um, And when I say that, when I say that I feel like she is a completely different character, I just mean she's never been as um, as articulate and as uh, gung-ho as she is here. And we see elements of it with, you know, where she, like, swings on the chain to, um, to uh, save the Doctor in the first episode or when, you know, she's firing back at her mum or Mickey. Um, but it does feel like a completely different character. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing necessarily because I love how she's characterized in this episode as someone exceptionally sexy and confident, but I'm not sure if it marries up with the character she was previously and whether it's a logic, like I feel like there's like a step missing between father's day and this episode that would have nicely filled in that transition. It's interesting that you say that because in a sense, this is the JJ Abrams to Ryan Johnson conversation that people had about the force awakens to the last jedi in the sense that because these two writers you know uh, russell t davies and moffat are so stylistically different and write their characters in such fundamentally different ways that there feels like there's a step missing between the two they're still fundamentally the same character but their entire like lexicon and and way of speaking and just sort of emotional makeup has matured and shifted a little bit and so while I, it's, it's part of that hand wavy away Doctor Who thing in the sense that like when we start this episode and it starts with that really fun action sequence of them chasing the thing through space, hmm. I think that's very deliberately done as a, you know, we are already on a brand new adventure after Father's Day. Like time has passed. Rose's sort of dealt with whatever happened there because there is no hint of, of Father's Day's events in this. No. Um and so we're, we're sort of just tossed into this, this brand new adventure um, action first straight away. Also like The Last Jedi, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, and, and you just kind of like go along with this new 
iterations logic um i don't know that you said that your main gripe is that the character that she is in this while you could almost see her as a natural extension of what has been sort of the, the seeds that have been sown in the past it doesn't continue into the next episode from memory no um the the trio the way that they're set up as you know jack dr rose definitely like that chemistry definitely extends to the next episode um but rose because of another returning character in the next episode mickey i feel like she has to take a step back and maybe that's maybe that's intentional maybe that's you know like we said in our discussion of aliens of london world war three like going back to earth going back home you always revert to a state of being you weren't when you left home when you like made that trip out into the world maybe that's what i'm um reacting to i think this is a discussion that we can have in future episodes maybe because rose's story doesn't end here um it definitely goes on for another whole season um (laughs) but besides all of that i do i love billy piper in this episode and she feels even if I don't necessarily vibe with where she's at now in comparison to where she's been, at least she, f- she feels like a super confident character. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like how John Barrowman sort of seeps into Captain Jack's performance a little bit with his kind of like very natural kind of suave. Billy Piper seeps in beautifully to this Rose because Moffat writes Rose as confident and, and sexy and self-assured and, you know, a little bit kind of like still finding her feet with things, mm. but also at the same time, she's a bit bored already with the trappings <laughs> of the way that the doctor travels through time. Like she, she retains her youth while also um, exhibiting signs of a character that has developed and grown. Mm. And I think that when we get to our sort of season one recap, I think it'll be interesting to sort of track the episodes where Rose is on a journey to this kind of Rose and where she falters on that journey because it has been oscillating between the two types of Rose. And you're right. And the other thing I just want to note about her in this episode is that she is uh, romantic as well, which is a trope that we will see come out more and more in future episodes, next season specifically. And I've just now thought of this about how Captain Jack functions in comparison to Adam, because obviously Adam was a companion that never could be. Jack becomes a companion by the end of this episode. Rose has a sort of mini romance with both of them, but whereas Adam was a child and a bad one at that, um, Jack is a, is a man, he's a man, man. And it's interesting how Rose went from that, like you could almost say that like the the people that she puts her trust in and the people that she uh, aligns herself with are also indicative of her development as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, who doesn't figure out who they are through making some interesting romantic choices at some point in their lives? Exactly. Um, Just wish that Mickey, you know, didn't have to take the brunt of that. But anyway, that's a discussion for next week because Mickey comes back. Mm. Oh, Mickey. We'll get to Mickey. Um, The problem with discussing a two-parter as strong as this is, is that um, it's almost overwhelming because we would very much like to just basically go through the entire episode with you folks and just be like, this was good and this was good and this was good. But we are running out of time. We don't want to keep you for too much longer. So let's just do some real quick fire final thoughts and just some scenes that we think may be worth, worth noting. Totally. Um... The one scene that I uh, adore is the one um, where they go. It's it's not even like there's not much to it really, but just the nice little horror 
moment of the doctor and Rose and Jack in the child's bedroom. And they're talking about like, there's the recording of the child in the background. And then you hear the ticker tape, like as the recording like runs out, but the child's voice is still playing. And then they reveal the child's in the room. Like this is, it's a, that's a very moffity kind of thing to do. Um, mm. Is the like, Ooh, well, if this is happening, then why is this happening? Kind of moment. It's like, it's almost like a cliche now. Um, but it's really good here. Um, what about you? Um, yeah, well, that's kind of the problem. Like, I wish I could just highlight every single scene <laughs> because I think every one of them sort of like dovetails perfectly into the next one. Like, I know that we talked about the way that you get like sort of the, the tone setting with the singing at the beginning is really wonderful. Um, the dinner scene where all the kids are sitting around the table with Nancy and then suddenly the doctor shows up and oh. he has that incredible line. <laughs> Uh, what is it like? I don't know if this is a, I don't know if this is Marxism in action or a Western musical. Exactly. It's just, it, the writing just crackles so beautifully here. Mm. Um, and there's just, uh, it, it's just good. Like my, my ultimate point is just, it's just so good. <laughs> it is. Um, it's the, yeah, it's the kind of Moffat story that, you know, we see again and we also never see again. Um, because it's so, he's so, so assured here in his writing, in his, his characterization in those marrying of elements. Um, it's really good. It is. It is. Uh, so what are you going to grade the empty child first? I think I would give the empty child, uh, an A plus for sure. And then the doctor dances probably an A. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to mirror your scores. Uh, the empty child is a A plus without reservation and the doctor dances. I mean, there's some like slight hiccups with the pacing because there isn't quite enough plot to cover maybe another 45 minutes. Uh, so yeah, that, that one's just an A, but still like as a bundle, they are easily the best that this season has been so far. It is one of my favorite Moffat stories. It's just so good. <laughs> Um, and yes, I think we've said that too many times this episode. Um, so that just shows you how good these episodes are. They're just really good, which I think brings us to the end of our discussion on the empty child and the doctor dancers. I'm almost sad to let this one go. Yeah, I, I do wish that we could just sit here and again, like if we could just play the episode in the background and have us watch it, like if we could essentially just do a watch along with you folks, we would love to. Uh, but yeah, it has to wrap up at some point. We do. We do. Um, and so as always, thank you for listening to us every week, uh, but this week as well. If you enjoy the episode, if you like us, uh, if you want to drop uh, a review, please do on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show um, as it helps us to grow our audience and it makes us feel good too. <laughs> and if you want to reach out or you have any questions or thoughts um, about the show, you can do so by emailing us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's two, the word two, or you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at two hearts pod. And that is the number two. Uh, I have been CJ and you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at CJ McLean underscore. And I have been James, and you can find me on Twitter at, at OMG More James. And we'll be back next week to discuss Boomtown. Uh, until next week, folks. Take it easy. Be safe. Bye.